welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Uh, Ooh, hello, hello. I'm sorry, I wasn't getting it in my headset. Hello. How are you? Good morning. It's, uh, what the hell is it? November 29th. Jeez. Uh, and it's a Monday, and I'm back in my own home, which uh, feels wonderful, uh, back in Pittsburgh. Um, and, well, you know, it, it just feels more settled, more comfortable. Uh, something about your own bed, what it is. So um, I was thinking that I've got to start looking on the brighter side <laughs> of things because um, we're, we, we've certainly been uh, acquainted with the darker side of things uh, for many years now. And by virtue of the fact that we we traffic in uh, news stories, which gravitate, of course, to uh, all manner of horror. I mean, that's just where we spend a lot of time. And we can forget to enjoy the positives that uh, are there as well. They just don't necessarily draw attention to themselves as readily as the negative. Um, and so one of the positives I came up with, and it was really one of the first thoughts when I gained consciousness uh, this morning. I woke up lying there and sort of getting my bearings. And I thought... Omicron. Is that it? Omicron. And I found myself sort of chuckling and I thought, well, we're getting to learn the Greek alphabet because I have to tell you, Omicron is not a letter that I really had in my head. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, uh, the ones that I saw on uh, sorority and fraternity houses <laughs> and ones that had, you know, more readily made their way into uh, into our conversation. But Omicron, man, that that totally got away from me. So um, I am grateful that I have been uh, reminded um, that Omicron. And I had to look it up to see how to pronounce it. And in fact, I'm pronouncing it using the British pronunciation, Omicron, because the uh, American uh, pronunciation was said to be Omicron. Now, why would we do that? We Americans. Because we want to be exceptional. Omicron. It, it, Omicron sounds right to me, so that's what I'm. That's what I'm going with. Oh shit! So there we are. That's the eh, Omicron. And I, I, I just want to say about 
about that. <laughs> a few things. A few things. Um, one of which is our, our media, again, you know, we have, how many times do we have to say this? Is, is geared to draw our attention because our media is our, oh, I hate that media thing being an R, because our media, our media are uh, money-making endeavors. And in order to make money, they need to attract our attention whether uh, through visuals or screaming headlines or, you know, frightening, whatever, whatever. That's how they entice us to sample their product. And because they're money-making endeavors, it skews the way that they report information. So... We are, I, I, you hear people say that, God, I'm just exhausted. These last few years have just been so exhausting. Yes, they have. And one of the exhausting aspects is media and its headlines and its promos and its hand-wringing, screeching pundits. And it's, it's exhausting. And so the news of Omicron came out almost immediately in an overly doomsday kind of manner. And the fact is, is we know very little about this. Okay, a new variant has been found. And I don't know how you reacted, but I reacted with fear. Oh, no, concern. And the headlines weren't helping me. And the government's shutting down borders wasn't helping me. But once you cut through that initial kind of doomsday, exhausting, very little information headline aspect of this Omicron. I, I keep wanting to put an N in there. There isn't one in there. Uh, Omicron. Omicron. I just turned into the... I, I, there's something about the word that I, I find difficult. Oh, Whatever. So anyway, my understanding is is that they're you know so we got to sit still and we'll get to know. I also want to say that all of these countries shutting down their borders left, right, and say it, it's absurd because as you've probably been reading as well, it's already this little virus mutant is already everywhere, and once it's wherever it is, it's in North America. It's in it. It's probably in Pittsburgh. It's everywhere already. It just hasn't been detected. Closing borders seems to be a fool's errand. Me. It's again sort of like taking your shoes off at the uh, at the airport. It, it 
it makes people feel like the authorities are <laughs> are doing something to protect us from the frightening unknown. But uh, it's ludicrous. This little uh, Omicron is, is, I'm sure, it's all over the globe. It was just the poor South Africans who first saw it, noted it, and then in a very responsible manner, unlike China at the beginning of all of this, notified the world, warned us. What do they get in return? (laughs) Do they get a thank you? No. They get the door slammed in their faces. Which, of course, is a kind of reaction that would not necessarily make other countries that might uh, discover a new mutation. It makes feel like the authorities are wanting to are doing something say anything about it or sitting around worrying about but, uh, it, the pros and the cons of letting the information out. Because obviously what South Africa has realized is that it's, um, oh, wonderful that you did the right thing and now we will punish you for it. And all of this brings brings to the fore our absurd idea that if we just hoard all the vaccines and, of course, this huge, reluctant hunk of America that refuses to get the vaccine. And the reality is, until everyone in the world is vaccinated, there will continue to be a risk. And when you create whole parts of the globe, like Africa, that do not have many people at all, I believe the, uh, it's only 6% of Africans that are fully vaccinated, 6%, well, that becomes a breeding ground for mutations. And as we know, these viruses like to travel. How they stay alive. They jump from place to place. And so this whole thing of rich countries making sure they're okay and the poorer parts of the world getting the crumbs, as if that is going to really ensure our safety, it's ridiculous, right? It's absurd. Because until everyone is vaccinated, everyone, we remain at risk. So this whole vaccine inequality thing, which not surprising, given given that we're dealing with humans, um, does not secure our at all. At all. Not to mention all the idiot Americans who refuse to get vaccinated. I assure you, they are a clearer and more present danger. But I'm sure this Omicron is already here. 
and it will probably, if they're right about it, seeming they think it looks like it's even more transmissible than Delta. Yeah, this will be the 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 new one. And, and here are the three things they need to know, and they don't have enough information yet to be able to tell us. It appears it is more communicable, more transmissible. And what we don't know is, does it result in more severe disease? The few little initial statements from doctors in South Africa who have seen it say it appears not to create more severe disease. And we also do not know if our the immunity we have, whether through vaccination or uh, prior infection, will will be effective against it. You know, either I have a mic open somewhere, there's an echo. Well, I don't know what to do. I only have the one mic. I think I have a mic open somewhere. Other than your broadcast mic or your producer has a mic open at City Paper, getting a strange delay echo. Not constant, but slightly present. Against it. Just saying. Okay. Let me know if it goes away, Milt. Thank you, though. Um, we remain not to mention all the more. All right. So, anyway, I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, you know, odds are that we'll still be pretty much in the same place we were, but all the unvaccinated folks, and there might be, I, I don't know. I am so sick of this. And I'm sure I speak for all of us. Uh, I don't know. Omicron. Where does that fall in the? I, I got to look up the Greek alphabet. I'm sure Alpha is the first one, right? A B C. I always think Alpha Beta. How come all languages? The first one isn't not all. All the ones I know. Well, that's not true because there's Uno Duo. Trey. But there's uh, in Hebrew it's Aleph, which like Alpha is A L Aleph. I give up. Happy Hanukkah, by the way. God, it's early this year. I. uh, What else I got? I'm sorry. I'm I'm sighing in your ear. One story that has stuck with me that I've seen in the last few days is this. Story of a 26, 26-year-old guy so desperate to get to the United States. I mean, most of us, if not all of us, have never known such desperation. So wanting to get to the United States that he tucked himself into the landing gear of a jet 
at an airport in Guatemala City. It, which is, is a pretty good way of committing suicide. Either freeze to death or you fall out or you're crushed when the landing gear retract or you die from lack of oxygen because those jets fly pretty high and the air gets really thin. I mean, it is just not how desperate do you have to be? And this guy makes it. He lands, that jet lands in Miami, and damn, if he doesn't get out. Shaken, dizzy, not feeling too well, but alive. And of course, he's now in the care of ICE. God help him. I think anyone showing that level of, well, could be stupidity, of determination, born of desperation, should be let in. Let that poor guy in. I cannot imagine anyone being so cold-hearted as to send that 26-year-old guy back after what he endured and did and survived. I don't know if we'll ever hear about him again. Ever follow up these stories? Poor soul. Turns out that the FAA has been keeping a tally of how many people have tried to uh, get one place or another by stowing away in the wheel wells or um, other areas of jets. And it turns out that as far as they know, since 1947, a long time, what, 75 years ago, 75 years ago, for 75 years, they're aware of 129 people having done it. I don't know if he's 130 or that is not a lot over that period of time. My guess is they really don't have a right number since a lot of those poor folks probably fell out. Uh and of those 129, by the way, 100 are known to have died during the flight so that when they got to where they had wanted to go, they were dead. There have been a few instances of people surviving. The most recent, other than this guy, I believe, is a 15-year-old boy who made it a five-and-a-half-hour flight from uh, somewhere in California to Hawaii in 2014. He was unconscious through most of the flight, and he survived, although I think his hearing was 
destroyed in some way or affected negatively. But the most horrific story I heard of in this line was just a few years ago. And I don't, you imagine a woman was sunbathing in her backyard in southwestern London. Now, if you've ever been in London, sunbathing in London is not something you get to do a lot. It really is cloudy and rainy. <laughs> a lot. So the sun came out and this woman jumped into her bathing suit and ran into her backyard and was lying there trying to catch some rays. And, well, it's too horrible. The body of a man came falling out of the sky and nearly fell on top of her. Can you imagine? I mean, there are some things where, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoa. That would be post-traumatic stressful, wouldn't it? Jeez. Wow. Poor guy. Was one of them who died en route. And then his body, when they put the landing gear down, they were about to uh, land at Heathrow. Landing gear came down, his body fell out. Roger writes, my friends and relatives in the service don't like it when people come up to them and thank them for their service. They just want to be left alone to shop and travel like everyone else. So if somebody's wearing a uniform, you're saying people come up and just out of nowhere say, thank you for your service. Since getting vaccinated is performing a service to our nation and the world, I would love to see someone being thanked for their service saying, oh, being thanked for their service. So if you're somebody who's being thanked for your service, Roger says they should then say, well, thank you. And are you vaccinated? And if they get a no, <laughs> well, Roger, I'm not going to. If they get a no, they should reply. And he's got a bunch of ex, ex, expletives here. But no, they should. Yeah, then they could reply, well, uh, you are not serving your country. You are not being a patriot. That'd be great. Oh, I've been feeling so old. Because I am. And I think it confuses me because my mom is still, you know, around. Because when you're an old person, and your mom is still, it just, I don't know. But my life just seems to keep popping back to me, my past. Once you're as old as I am, your life is mostly behind you. I mean, 
obviously it's all God knows how maybe, you know, 99% of it is. I don't know. My life is pretty much lived. And I've had a hell of an interesting life. I really have. And for some reason, this one part of my life keeps coming back at me. I'm not saying like I'm having visions. I'm saying I'm minding my own business and it comes back to me. And I'm going to tell you a story. Pretty, well, I I don't know how much I'm going to tell. Let's see. When I drove a few weeks ago out to the west, I um, I'm sorry, just getting some messages. I took an audio book with me, and I don't know why I chose this one, but I just thought she's such an amazing actress. This is interesting. So I had an autobiography uh, by Cicely Tyson, the amazing uh, black actress who herself reads the book. So it was her voice in my head the whole trip. And what's amazing is the voice is so extraordinarily strong. She's 96. And the book's so new that she's talking about George Floyd in it. So that's how new it is. She, it must have been published when she was 95. She read it. The audiobook came out when she's 95 or 96. I don't know. Strong voice. And when you're 96, that means, you know, that span of time and and the fact that she was black in this country, it's going to be an interesting, and in this case, I probably figured rags to riches story. And it is an interesting story. She didn't even start acting until, until she was in her 30s. And all of it happened by happenstance. Walking down the street, some guy says, you should be a model. She was a secretary. And she became a model. And then once she's a model, someone says, you know, they're looking for, I know. And bango, she's in the movies. You know, it's one of those things where you get, you're just in the right place at the right time. (laughs) So she had no training as an actress, but somebody wanted to put her in a movie And she got very nervous and said, I don't know anything about this. I've got to study with somebody. And she asked around and heard that there was this guy. I'm remembering his name, Lloyd Richards. I think that's right. Uh, Who was a black acting teacher, later took over the Yale uh, theater department. And she found out where he was and found out that all of uh, that Sidney Poitier had studied there, that uh, Ruby D and uh, Ossie Davis had studied there, that Harry Belafonte had studied there, that this is the guy because things were still so segregated and black actors and or black teachers didn't have 
much access to anything. So I'm listening to this story and she finds out where to go to get to Lloyd Richards. It turns out he is working in, as I almost drove off the road, let me just say I was on the uh, Indiana Turnpike. Uh, She said, so I was told Lloyd Richards was at the Paul Mann Actors Studio. When she said Paul Mann, that's when I said, oh, my God. And then she talked about going in to see Paul Mann. It was his studio. And she was told you have to go through him. And she talked, the fact that she was going to, I could tell, she's going to tell the story of going in to see Paul Mann. And I thought, oh my God, I know where this is going. Because I too had been told much later that Cicely Tyson and younger than Cicely Tyson, I was 20, to go and see Paul Mann. I know what happened to me. So I know what was about to happen to her, even though it happened in the 50s. He went right at her. He sexually assaulted her. She fought him off. Um, the fact that at the age of 95 and 96, she still remembered so clearly her time with Paul Mann and how it impacted her life. And I'm driving and listening to this because, oh man, did that man influence mine even more so and it was so clear that she wanted to set the record straight about who he was because he still gets accolades about being the guy I mean Sidney Poitier and Belafonte still speak warmly of him of how what a great teacher he was and how he provided this, uh, you know, teaching to, uh, to black actors who otherwise wouldn't have necessarily had access to it. Paul Mann. I don't even know where to go with it. I would not be sitting here if it weren't for Paul Mann. He totally took over my life. Unlike Cicely Tyson, I didn't have the will or I didn't have the will. Bite him off. I didn't know what to do. The Paul man who assaulted her was a younger Paul man. He got me in the, what? About 1979. And he was an old man. 
the fat old man, an enormous in many ways figure. And he was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, not in New York, where he assaulted her and we later learned God knows how many other women. He was in Green Bay, Wisconsin, because shortly after assaulting Cicely Tyson, along with untold hundreds, he was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. It was the McCarthy era, the 50s. And somebody had said he was a commie. He was hanging out with a lot of blacks. Seemed to be, uh, yeah, suspect. I remember him because I became his for almost a year of my life. I remember him showing me the transcripts of his appearance at House Un-American Activities Committee. And I must say, he was outrageous. And it cost him his career. He was blacklisted. That's how a guy like that, who apparently was extraordinarily talented, uh, ended up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. He was heading the theater department at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, which I assure you is not a place that he ever would have thought he would be. And that's where I met him. And to hear Cicely Tyson still at 95 spitting his name into the microphone and making clear that she did not allow him <clears throat> to stand in her way. And then making clear later, well, you think she's left him, she comes back to him and talks about something that I, too, that gave me some measure of vindication. Because in 1984, long after he was out of my life, I was here in Pittsburgh. And somebody sent me the front page of the Village Voice. And the story was uh, a story of, I think it was eight of his female students, because he ended up back in New York, eight of his female students tried to get him criminally prosecuted for sexual assault. And the law didn't quite have a law against it then at 84, what he was doing. Hey, he's an acting teacher. You know, acting teachers say things like, you know, you have to be comfortable in your own body. You have to be comfortable with me, you know. So let's all take our clothes off and, you know, whatever, whatever. This was what was going on. And they, it was a big story. And he was found guilty. It was a civil case because there was no criminal thing. It was a civil case. And it destroyed him. And he died the next year. And Tyson 
still had to hammer it home in her autobiography. This was at a time in my life when I was as lost a soul as you could ever imagine. I had dropped out of college. I was on my way to San Francisco to, you know, tune on, tune in, turn on, drop out. I, I was just lost. And I'd come up to Green Bay to get some stuff. And then I was leaving. And my parents were frantic, as one can imagine. And my mother had met Paul Mann at some party. And she told him about me and he got real interested and she said to my mom, why don't you have her come by my office? And so my mom said, I met this fascinating man. And he was, Oh God. Oh God. He was. So my poor mom set me up. And from the moment I walked into his office, he controlled my life. He changed the way I walked. He changed my hair. He changed. He would say, I still, if I scuff my feet when I'm walking, now as an old woman, I'll get, you know, a little scuff in my tread. I'll hear his voice pick up your feet. He never really taught me anything about it. And I didn't want to be an actress. That wasn't something I wanted. I never even thought of it. He never taught me. He just took me. But he was a fascinating man with his fascinating history. And the way that he ended up, the way I ended up escaping. I'm sorry, all this has just been. I picked that book. Listen to. And the way that I got away was. One night at his apartment, the phone rang, and I could tell from his end of the conversation that he was getting some really good news. And he got off, and here's what he said. That was Norman Jewison. Norman Jewison, I knew that name. He was a big producer, director, big. And he had told Paul, Paul, glad I tracked you down. Because I think it's time for you to come in from the cold. <laughs> Meaning, of course, that the blacklist had destroyed him. And he had gotten no acting jobs, nothing. And Jewison told him, I'm doing a movie. I have a part for you. We begin shooting in two months. Blah, 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 blah. And Paul told me about it. The movie was filming in Yugoslavia. And he assumed, Paul, that I would be going with him. And I saw my escape. 
because I said, no, I'm not, I don't want to go. I don't know how I finally, I stood up and he was enraged, but I stood up and said, I'm not coming with you. And he said, if you will not stay with me to study, we never studied acting. I don't know what he was even talking about. He said, you will go to New York and you will study with the next best teacher, Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse. That's what happened. I still went where he told me to go. That's how I ended up in New York City at the Neighborhood Playhouse with the renowned Sanford Meisner. And in that class, only about 60 of us, was a kid who I befriended named Jeff Goldblum. And that takes me to the thing that happened yesterday. I'm reading the New York Times, and I turn the page, and there's Jeff looking at me. And he's talk. I don't know what, this is a weird thing where he's, I, I, I didn't even understand. It was just like an interview of sorts of him talking about this, that, or the other thing. And at the end, the last thing he says, Goldblum said in the Sunday Times, I think my brother was into Blind Faith and Cream, and Steve Win Winwood did the original version, which struck me when I was a kid when I first heard it through him. He was my older brother, who died when he was 23. It seemed very romantic at the time. That brother... Rick, Jeff had always said, you're so much like my brother, Rick. He felt like we were like, he said, you guys need to get together. And Rick finally came and we did get together. But he was on his way. I'm remembering to Casablanca. I think it was, yeah, Morocco. He was, he was, you know, it was the late 60s, early 70s. It was that time. We were all flower children. And he was, yeah, he was a wonderful guy, handsome guy. I don't really remember him well. But he flew off. And I think it was a week later. He was dead. It was unbelievable. He had some kind of medical emergency that if he'd been here, if he were in New York, wouldn't have killed him. He was dead. And Goldblum talks about how he was hearing that music that his brother had turned him on to, and he started crying. 
and how his child found him crying. And how he said, this is such a sad song, but it's beautiful. It's a sadness that makes you feel it's nice to be sad sometimes, is what Jeff told his child. So I thought, how odd is this? And in the span of a few weeks, I'm driving to Green Bay. And Cicely Tyson is telling me about a Paul man is still in her head. And but he's the reason I went to New York. And then there's Jeff. And then that's how all the skills I learned in that. In New York, acting. Um, I never put to use acting. I put it to use doing what I do. Life is odd. So I, you know, I often say I have no regrets because one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And I have had this wondrous life. Wow. Is this what happens when you get old? <laughs> that the past just keeps coming back at you? Oh. Well, anyway. It's 11 o'clock. Oh, my God. Um, I don't even know if I should have shared that. But actually, when I did my one-woman show, I did, of course, talk about Paul because he was one of those major figures for good or ill that sent me on my way. By the way, the movie in Yugoslavia was Fiddler on the Roof. And Paul, if you ever want to revisit the movie, plays the butcher, Laser Wolf, who is supposed to marry one of Tevya's daughters, but she doesn't want him. <laughs> and by the way, I later heard that while in Yugoslavia, Paul, of course, took up with one of the actresses who played one of the daughters, and I'm not sure which one. But when he came back from Fiddler on the Roof and started his Paul Mann actor studio back up so that he could assault God knows how many other young women, eight of whom courageously, finally took him down for the scores of others whose lives he impacted or, or five decades more. Uh, interesting life. All right, you guys, that's it for me. I'll uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Thursday, from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. 
and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.